0: Do
1: you still have chocolate in your mouth or are you ready to talk? (laughs) I'm ready. I'm in a real good place right now. Just got out of the hot tub. I'm drinking some Prosecco and eating some beautiful caramel chocolates that (laughs) I got for Valentine's Day from my (laughs) ex-husband. I mean, somebody should give you some it chocolates. It sounds weirder than it is. He has a friend who owns this chocolate shop in Seattle. It's called Dolcetta Artisan Sweets. And they are delicious. He's probably noticed that every time he gives the girls chocolates that I partake. So maybe he just gave me my own damn box this time.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for sharing them with me. They are lovely.
1: Not only delicious, but beautiful. So yes. Hot tub, Prosecco, chocolates. I'm in a good the, spot. The snow is melting. Yeah. The snow is going away. It's been snowmageddon yet again here in Seattle. I'm sure you all saw the social Mm -hmm. media posts from our account. We've Mm -hmm. barely made it out alive. I mean, it was almost a foot of snow at the peak there. I think Um, it was a
0: foot. um, That was all before my heater went out, though. So that's fun. That was some fuckery. Yep. Still happening. So that's why I'm here. I mean, I love you and all, but you have a hot tub.
1: (laughs) And (laughs) And I also have Prosecco and and chocolates. chocolates. So So I'll take it. I'm all set. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to our topic today. Why don't you tell everybody since it was your idea what we're talking about?
0: Yeah, we want to do something a little bit different today. February is Black History Month. And there have been a lot of posts in the last couple years that specifically talk about how black history
1: is American history. And I love that the narrative is changing to that. It should just be a consistent part of the narrative and the curriculum in school, right? Yeah, it's a fucking
0: shame that we grew up not knowing most of this stuff because the history books don't teach everything.
1: Right. I'm glad that our kids are so much more aware because there Mm -hmm. is more of an effort, but we've got a long way to go.
0: (laughs) Right. And I think it's our job as well to help shine a light on the areas that are lacking for them. 100%. So we thought that we would share some stories about particular Black people in American history that have made a big impact and that we found really inspirational. Yep. Do you want to take turns? Sure. Yeah, let's take turns. But first, I don't want to give a history lesson on Black History Month, but I do want to say that Black History Month began in 1915 when a Harvard-trained historian, Carter G. Woodson, and a prominent minister at the time, Jesse E. Moreland, founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, an organization that was dedicated to researching and promoting achievements by Black Americans and other people of African descent. Every year since then, the sitting president has officially recognized February as Black History Month. Did you know that each year Black History Month has a theme? I did not know that. Neither did I. What's the theme this year? This year's theme is Black Family, Representation, Identity, and Diversity. And it's exploring the African diaspora, um, people who are displaced from their homelands, and the spread of Black families across the United States.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: The fact that I'm 41, I'll be 42 next week, and didn't know those things it's just a fucking shame so
1: you know one other thing i want to add is that we didn't have any rules for the people we were going to select to talk mm. about today but i thought it was interesting how we both picked women two women, to women. Yeah. Because I was just reading this article yesterday about how it was three women that started the Black Lives Matter movement Mm -hmm. and how there is a consistency in black history where the men that have been influential are talked about quite a lot, Mm -hmm. but only a handful of women you know, like Rosa Parks and Ruby Bridges and others that are well known that have done amazing things are talked about and that there's so many other women who were so accomplished and trailblazing. And yeah, yeah, did so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not only is there the racism that they have to combat, but then also a gender equity issue as well. So I thought it was kind of cool that even though we didn't put any parameters on it, we each picked two women to talk about today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I will start I want to tell you about Bessie Coleman. Lay it on me. For the record, I got information from the National Women's History Museum, PBS, The New York Times, the National Aviation Hall of Fame, Biography.com, and Wikipedia. Very official. Mm -hmm. Now, Bessie Coleman was also known as Brave Bessie and Queen Bess and the only race aviatrix in the world. By the way, aviatrix is my new favorite word. What do you mean when you say race aviatrix? Well, hang on. She was known as that because she was the first African-American and actually the first Native American woman pilot. Okay. So I believe when they say race aviatrix, what they mean is not white. Right. Ugh. I know, right? But this phrasing was from back in her day. That's okay. not like a new phrase.
1: Okay. That so, wasn't like an article that someone wrote two years ago and used that terminology. No, okay, no, that. these were her actual living nicknames.
0: So she was born January 26th in 1892 in Atlanta, Texas, which I didn't know there was in Atlanta, Texas. <laughs> Bessie was the 10th of 13 children born to Susan Coleman, an African-American maid, and George Coleman, a sharecropper of mixed African-American and Native American descent. Um, And he was of the Cherokee tribe.
1: So interesting that you said that because I was just looking at some history on that tribe today for work-related reason. Mm -hmm. The Cherokee tribe had African-American slaves as well. Which I did not know. Yeah. When that stopped and they became what they call freedmen, they granted them citizenship within the Cherokee Nation. Mm. The reason why I had to look at it is because it impacts how land holdings were awarded historically. There was a period of time several years ago where there was some dispute over whether those African Americans that were once slaves and their descendants should be considered citizens of the Cherokee Nation because Mm -hmm. most tribes, they're sovereign nations. And so they can set their own criteria for enrollment as a tribal member there were some people that wanted to revoke their citizenship. Hmm. And I think there was a case in 2017 that ultimately, I guess you'd say restored or confirmed the citizenship of the freedmen of the Cherokee tribe in Oklahoma. So anyway, so random that you're talking about that. Yeah, I'm certainly
0: way outside my, you know, purview here. But I would think that their citizenship should have been reinstated there. I think if anybody's held against their will anywhere, then they should probably get some rights on the tail end of that.
1: Yeah, just interesting how it's another piece of history that Mm -hmm. I don't know maybe students in Oklahoma are educated on that but was something that I didn't know and I have an expertise in Native American land holdings for my job and so always learning something new right so sorry I didn't mean to detract but that's okay no talking about this. I
0: think that any opportunity to learn about any of this stuff is good because we weren't given those opportunities right okay so George and Susan, the parents, managed to save enough money to buy land. How? How with that many children? I know. Well, to be fair, only nine of them survived, which was typical for oh, the time. Fuck. But okay. still, that's yeah. still a lot of kids. But when Bessie was two years old, they moved the family to Waxahachie, Texas, which is just south of Dallas, where they had bought this land. In 1901, when Bessie was nine, George decided to move to Oklahoma to what was then known as that Indian Territory you were just talking about, in search of a life with less racial oppression. But Susan didn't want to leave their home, so she stayed in Waxahachie and raised the kids as a single mother. So the ones I think there were still four kids living at home at that time. Props to her. I know, right? So throughout her childhood, Bessie attended school in a one-room shack four miles from her house that served as the area's very segregated schoolhouse, and. Every year, she was forced, like everybody else, to take time off from her studies to pick cotton when the crop was ready for harvest. Between that work and washing laundry, though, she was able to save enough money to enroll in college when she was 18. In 1910, she moved to Langston, Oklahoma, to attend the Colored Agricultural and Normal University, which is now langston university What the fuck? well Uh i don't know man i don't know but it was 111
1: years ago yeah i I know i know it's just still yeah hard to hear
0: it is hard which i think is part of the problem and why people don't want to talk about it because it's uncomfortable to hear it's uncomfortable to say people let that awkwardness keep them quiet about stuff rather than discussing it right
1: but don't and i'm sorry i feel like i keep interrupting your that's okay we're here to talk this woman but don't you think that it's not that difficult to take current journalistic reporting or articles and refine the terminology that you use to describe the scenario so it's not offensive I guess well, like but that, that was the name of it that was the name yeah but I don't know it's so rough you know it is but that's what I'm saying I
0: don't think that we should gloss over that I don't think we should change it to make people feel more comfortable about hearing it now yeah. because I
1: think it's important that we know that it's fucking rough right you know that's just like I don't know if you're aware of this but there are and I can't go too deep into it because I'm conscientious of how much I say about my work on this podcast. But I think it's apparent from my prior comment that I do some work related to, you know, land holdings. Mm -hmm. And one thing that is common all over the country is when subdivisions were developed back when there was a lot of racial inequity, people would record covenants against the property Mm -hmm. that outline what all the property owners in that subdivision can do with their property, you know, and Sometimes it's as small and ridiculous as you must pull your trash cans back right. in by 5 p.m. on the day trash is collected or whatever. HOA bullshit stuff. Yeah, yeah, but also there are old covenants that are sometimes interesting, like nobody can ever operate a commercial establishment where alcohol is served mm. or sold on this premises or something like that. And there are a lot of racially restricted covenants Yep. that are not just directed at African Americans, but, you know, people that are Jewish or people that are of all different racial backgrounds. Backgrounds. And there's federal law now that outlaws those racial restrictions. But because those covenants are a part of the public record, you can't remove them, Right. you know, and there's other relevant content in the documents. Mm-hmm. So there have been several bills over the last couple of years, including one that's pending this year. In this session, because our legislature is in session right now in Washington, that promote vehicles for trying to record other documents or take other steps to ensure that people are aware that these racially restricted covenants are illegal Mm -hmm. and that while they may exist in the record, they are not enforceable. It's really sensitive, but it's part of history and it's out there. How do you erase history? You don't want to pretend that that didn't happen because there's a awful lesson in it. Right, that we all need. It still sucks that somebody buying a house or a piece of commercial property mm-hmm. today could have the title to that property run and look at the documents encumbering the title to that property and see that there is a covenant that has a racial restriction on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were somebody who is one of the races that is prevented from owning property, you know, back when the covenants were first enforced or recorded against the property, that wouldn't feel good. No, it'd be a big fucking gut punch. But it's it's there, you know, like you have a chain of historical records of all matters recorded against your property. And when you buy or mortgage residential or commercial real estate, all of those documents have to be examined. Mm -hmm. So it's
0: out there. I I think it's the right thing to not remove those things, because that's exactly how we ended up with the whitewash history education that we got people took the stuff that's uncomfortable out
1: or like the people who say like I don't see color bullshit well it's like but I want you to see my color you know like not me obviously but I mean I think you look very pale what (laughs) I am (laughs) what I've heard in the listening that I've tried to do is I don't want you to not acknowledge my race my ethnicity my heritage my culture you Mm -hmm. know I want you to see it I want you to acknowledge it You can still be fair, but don't not acknowledgement because then you're invalidating it. Yeah. You
0: erase the experience of someone whose entire life has been impacted by the fact that their skin is a different color. If you say, oh, I don't see color.
1: Right. I'm even uncomfortable. I will say, you know, sitting here and talking about all of this, like I know. I get it intellectually, but I don't know. No, we can't. know. I don't know how that feels. I don't know what it's like for somebody to like process those feelings and emotions and try to have that conversation and try to get someone to understand. I don't know. I have the privilege of not knowing how mm-hmm. that feels. I can try to understand, but I can't pretend that I can feel it the way that they feel of it. Of course not.
0: No, but I think that recognizing that and being willing to learn and know that there's things you don't know mm-hmm. and want to hear their stories is where you have to start. Right.
1: Right. Okay, let's talk about Bessie. That's okay. It's so hard not to segue. I mean, it's a big fucking topic. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, so she had moved in 1910 to Oklahoma to go to school. Unfortunately, she had to drop out after only one semester because she couldn't afford to stay. Then in 1915, at the age of 23, Bessie moved to Chicago to live with her brothers. And she had hoped to find more opportunity there than she had had in Texas. And she's quoted as saying that she wanted to, quote, amount to something. Who doesn't? All right. She started by attending the Burnham School of Beauty Culture and becoming a manicurist on Chicago's South Side.
1: Nice. Mm -hmm.
0: It was there that she met Robert Abbott, who was the founder and publisher of the Chicago Defender, a weekly newspaper that grew to have the biggest circulation of any Black-owned newspaper in the country. Its success resulted in him, Abbott, becoming one of the first self-made millionaires of African-American descent. Meanwhile, Bessie's brothers had served in France during World War I, and when they came back, they and other returning soldiers had wild stories to tell, and her interest in aviation was piqued as she's listening to them talk. But finding someone to teach a woman, let alone a black woman, to fly in 1918 America was impossible. Yeah. Yeah. They, her brothers, would tease her because French women were allowed to fly. And she wasn't. And so they were, I mean, I think one of them was literally quoted as saying something like, I know something they can do that you can't fly or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Just, you know, how you give your siblings shit. <laughs> so this only fueled her fire. And on the advice of Robert Abbott, she decided to go to France to learn to fly. So she enrolled in French. I love that. She's like, I'm going to fucking do that.
1: I want to like, do that.
0: Fuck gonna you guys. I'm going to go to I'm going. So she enrolled in French language classes at the Berlitz Language School in Chicago. And with the financial support of Robert Abbott, she traveled to Paris in November of
1: 1920.
0: Nice. She learned to fly there at the well-known Cadrone Brothers School of Aviation. And she learned to fly in a Newport 684 biplane with, quote, a steering system that consisted of a vertical stick, the thickness of a baseball
1: bat in front of the pilot, and a rudder under the pilot's feet. Oh, shit. That's it. Obviously, you'd have to be not scared of heights. Yes. An adrenaline junkie. Yes. And so dedicated. Yeah. Like I would never even go bungee jumping. No. Fuck that. No. Much you would less <laughs> like I might get into a little plane that probably looked rickety back then compared to what we have now.
0: Well, and remember that planes back then, the biplanes back then didn't have
1: roofs. There no was roof? no roof. Is it roofs or roofs? Oh God! This is just like masks gifts roofs edited um, it <laughs> <laughs> it's roofs roofs okay yeah you just okay. have to really enunciate yeah. the word
0: yeah so not only was she way up high in the sky flying with a stick and a bar but there was nothing over her head god damn yeah she earned her license there in only seven months
1: Wow. Oh, i don't girl.
0: know how long it takes to earn a pilot's license but that seems short to me Anywho, so on June 15th, 1921, Bessie became the first black woman and the first Native American to earn an aviation pilot's license, as well as becoming the first black person and the first Native American to earn an international aviation license from the, let me see if I can get this correct, Fédération Aéronautique Internationale. How'd I do? You're so good at the accents. Thank you. I never took French, so... Well, I did not like, preschool,
1: but, you know. Well, I am giving you my stamp of approval. Beautiful. Appreciate it. I did take French, by the way. I'm not just an asshole.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're also an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. You left that wide open. Okay. After earning her license, she stayed in France for a couple more months to take lessons from a French ace pilot before returning to the U.S. uh, because she knew she'd need more training. And she returned by ship in September of 21 to much fanfare and media attention. Her dream at that point was to own a plane and open her own flight school. So because at that time, commercial aviation was still in its infancy, to make a living, she would have to be a civilian aviator, which would mean she had to become like a stunt flyer, performing dangerous tricks for paying audiences. And this form of entertainment was known as barnstorming. Bessie knew that she'd need more advanced training in order to be successful at that. So once again... Unable to find anybody to teach her in Chicago because assholes everywhere. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: She sailed back to Europe again in February of 1922 She spent a couple months in France and then spent time in the Netherlands and Germany before returning to the U.S. in the late summer.
1: I'm surprised she didn't want to just stay there. (laughs) There was obviously less issues related to her race and gender.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, her old family was back here. And she had some shit to prove. She's going to be like, no, fuck you guys. That's right. I'm doing this. So her first appearance at an air show was at Curtis Field on Long Island on September 3rd, 1922. This also marked the first public flight by an African-American woman ever. Bessie became famous for her daredevil aerial tricks, doing loop-the-loops and figure-eights for fascinated audiences. And she was even known
1: to walk along the wing of a plane while in flight. What? Yep. I could, I could never. I don't even think I could watch somebody do that. Yeah. I would be so scared.
0: People were on the ground cheering her on, and she was walking on the fucking wing of a plane.
1: Damn. Mm-hmm.
0: Get it. In early 1923, she was actually able to buy her own plane, but on February 22nd of that year, which, coincidence, that is the day of this year that this episode will be released. Oh. February 22nd. And your birthday. Also that. (laughs) (laughs) On that day, the engine stalled and she crashed. She was badly injured, but survived. She suffered a broken leg and several cracked ribs, but she made a full recovery and went back to flying a couple years later. During her time out of the cockpit in those couple years, she traveled all over the country and gave speeches in theaters, churches, and schools to earn money. She was committed to promoting aviation and fighting racism, so she spoke to audiences about her life and the pursuit of aviation as an African-American, and she refused to speak anywhere that was segregated or promoted discrimination.
1: Oh, nice. Mm
0: -hmm. Still saving money with the goal of opening her own flight school, Bessie lined up a series of air shows and continued her exhibition flying, also doing the occasional parachute jump. As she had done with her speeches, she refused to perform unless audiences were desegregated. There was one, I can't remember where the show was, but I read that they were going to have white people and black people enter through different gates and then sit separately. And she just flat out refused until they agreed to drop all that bullshit and
1: use one gate. It's kind of cool. Obviously, this was a passion that she pursued, just because Mm -hmm. it was something that she was interested in. And then when she did pursue it, she determined that she did love it. But she was able to sort of marry that passion with promoting racial equity and recognizing her role as being so unique that it could start a conversation. So
0: yeah, the people who break down these barriers, and then leave the doors open for those that follow. Those are the real fucking heroes. Like, right. if you're, like, you fight like hell to get into a position and then you're like, nope, I made it here. You can work hard, too. Well, of course people are going to work hard, but fuck off. Like, don't contribute to the problem. I'm looking at you, Amy Coney Barrett. <laughs> Sorry, what? Oh, God. That's anyway. Funny. Where are we? Okay. Bessie made the final payment on her new plane in April of 1926. That plane was then flown from Dallas to... I believe she was in Orlando, by her mechanic, William Wills. They had a show on May 1st. And so on April 30th, they took it for a test flight. During that flight, William was the pilot and Bessie was a passenger because she was planning a parachute jump for the next day. And she wanted to be able to scope out the terrain for where she would land. Okay. When they were at about 3,000 feet in elevation, uh, a loose wrench, it was later determined, got stuck in the engine, and Will's lost control. The plane nosedived, went into a tailspin, and flipped upside down. And remember, there's no roof. He did she have her parachute on yet? She did not have a parachute on. She wasn't planning on parachuting oh, that I day. See. Okay. She was just scoping it out. <sighs> and she didn't even have a seatbelt on. <sighs> because she was leaning over the cockpit trying to look at the land and see. Okay. So, she fell out of the plane when they were about 500 feet in the air and obviously fell to her death. Oh, sad so, ending. Yeah. Yeah. She was 34 years old.
1: Accomplished a lot in 34 years. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. This part of the story doesn't make any I mean, it was so long ago. People didn't know as much then. But So the plane crashed, obviously, and also killed William Wells. And as rescuers tried to lift the plane off of him, someone lit a match for a cigarette igniting the gas fumes from the plane and the whole aircraft went up in flames how are people so fucking stupid right that's what i'm thinking and then i'm like well it was 1926 did we not know as much about fire back then i don't know Mm. anyway bessie coleman's body lay in state in both orlando and chicago where thousands of people attended memorial services she never did get her own flying school for african-americans but in 1929 william j powell established the bessie coleman aero club in la some other impacts that she's made. In 1931, the Challengers Pilot Association of Chicago started the annual tradition of flying over Coleman's grave. In 1977, African women pilots formed the Bessie Coleman Aviators Club. And in 1995, the United States Postal Service issued a Bessie Coleman stamp commemorating, quote, her singular accomplishment in becoming the world's first African-American pilot, and by definition, an American legend. That's awesome.
1: You know, yeah. what? I remember that stamp. I do too. I
0: have one quote from her here that I wanted to read. The air is the only place free from prejudices. I knew we had no aviators, neither men nor women, and I knew the race needed to be represented along this most important line, so I thought it my duty to risk my life to learn aviation.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, she's an incredible woman. Yeah, sounds like Really it. fucking sad ending. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Nice. I feel like for people who take big risks and live big lives, yeah. there's often a big ending that is right. sad.
0: Okay, now you tell me a
1: story. Okay, this will probably be a little bit shorter than that because there's limited information on this individual.
0: Not as much for me to riff on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I will also do a poorer job than you did of citing sources. Basically, I read about this individual on Wikipedia and multiple articles mainly like some information on the Wounded Warrior Project page Hmm. and a few other articles that I didn't do a good job of documenting. But I will say that some of this is taken verbatim from those articles. So just to put that out there. So when we get sued, I'll know it was your fault. Yes. Perfect. (laughs) Okay, so I'm talking about an individual named Kathy Williams. She was born in 1844 in Independence, Missouri. Her father was a free man and her mother was a woman in slavery. So because of that, her legal status was that of a slave Mm. when she was born. So when she was young, she worked as a house slave in Jefferson City, Missouri. And in 1861, so she would have been about 17 years old, Union forces occupied Jefferson City in the beginning of the Civil War. And at that time, captured female slaves were designated by the Union as contraband. Oh, my God. And were forced to serve in the military in support roles like cooks or laundresses or nurses. So what's interesting about that is it kind of depends on what article you read. Because Mm. technically, she was considered a freed slave since the Union kind of came in and took over. But there was heavy pressure for those slaves to...
0: contribute
1: still yeah like go into work for the federal army as a paid servant so basically instead of being a slave like a house slave like she was then she got a lot of pressure to become a paid servant and work in the army So Kathy served in the army as a cook and a washerwoman. Washerwoman. Yeah. What a title. And so because she was in that role, though, she did kind of travel around a lot and she did observe a lot of strategy and combat and battles. She became really intrigued. She wanted to establish some form of independence and, you know, make Mm -hmm. her own way. So despite the fact that there was a prohibition against women serving in the military, she enlisted in what they called the U.S. Regular Army under the false name of William Cathy. So her name was Cathy Williams, but Ah. she enlisted as William Cathy. And that was on November 15th, 1866. And she signed up for a three-year engagement, passing herself off as a man. That's amazing. Yeah. So I calculated she would have been about 22 at the time. Her gender, you would think, should have been discovered during her initial medical examination. But at that time, the army wasn't requiring full medical exams. So her exam was like short and cursory, not very thorough. So they didn't discover that she wasn't male. That's crazy. And there's like a written description of what she looks like. And it's so vague. Well, some articles I read said that she was 5'7". Somebody else described her as 5'9", with like black hair and black eyes and dark complexion, obviously, and... She was assigned to the 38th United States Infantry Regiment and there were only two other people that knew about her posing as a man. Her cousin and a friend of hers, both of whom were fellow soldiers in her regiment. You know, there's a lot of speculation of well how did she pull it off having like a different body bathing and using the bathroom and stuff and nobody's really sure how she did it but not too long after she was enlisted she contracted smallpox and she recovered from that but after that her health was a lot more fragile and she was frequently hospitalized during one of those hospitalizations finally a surgeon discovered that she was a woman (laughs) (laughs) can you imagine the surprise on that guy's face and the funny thing is is that she was (laughs) hospitalized a lot and they never figured it out so then when the surgeon finally did they informed her commander but she said that once the men found out that she was female they treated her pretty poorly i would think so she was honorably discharged on october 14th 1868 after being discharged from the army, she signed up with this emerging all black regiment that eventually became part of the legendary Buffalo Soldiers. The Mm. Buffalo Soldiers were the first all black units of the military. Wow. So she kind of had, you know, this sensational story. When she got out of doing military work, she went back to other kind of more traditional roles as like a cook and, Mm -hmm. you know, other things later in life. But at some point in 1876, the St. Louis Daily Times ran an article about her and the public learned her whole story at that point. Later on in her life, you know, she suffered from a lot of ailments. And there was a point where she didn't have any toes and she had to walk with a crutch. I'm sorry, any toes? None. And she had all kinds of issues. So she applied for a disability pension based on her military service around 1889. Mm -hmm. There were other women that served in the military that I'll talk about in a minute that had received disability pensions. So there was kind of a precedent for this. It wasn't like unheard of that Mm -hmm. she would get a disability pension. But they ended up rejecting her application in 1893, even after she had an exam and they discovered how difficult her life was. It's kind of assumed that she died sometime that year or shortly after and her final resting place is unknown. So I mentioned that there were other women that served in the army posing as male soldiers. There was actually over 400 women wow. who served in the Civil War posing as male soldiers. But Kathy was the first African-American woman to enlist and the oh. only documented woman to serve in the United States Army while disguised as a man during the, what they call the Indian Wars. Mm-hmm. She's also the only known female Buffalo soldier which is a big deal. Damn girl. So recognition for her, you know, in addition to that one article in 2016, a bronze bust of Kathy Williams featuring information about her and a small rose garden around it was unveiled outside of the Richard Allen cultural center in Leavenworth, Kansas. And in 2018, the private Kathy Williams monument bench was unveiled on the walk of honor at the national infantry museum. Wow. So she did, you know, does get some recognition. Mm -hmm. Part of it, as I appreciate it from reading the articles, part of this decision on her part was she became intrigued and invested emotionally in the war Mm -hmm. by traveling around even just you know, being a cook and observing everything. And then also the desire to be independent and make her own way and call her own shots. And she saw that, well, men can do this, men can enlist. Right. And she just said, well, fuck it, I'm gonna pretend to be a man then. And it's amazing how far she got and how yeah. long she sort of, I mean, she participated in a lot of marches and I don't think she saw a lot of combat per se, but she definitely was an active member. Wow, that's that incredible. incredible. I thought that was interesting and I wanted to talk about her.
0: I couldn't help but think, and I didn't interrupt you with this joke because it completely inappropriate timing. But you haven't watched Arrested Development, have you? No. We're going to have to get that on the Make on the happen. schedule. Okay. Yeah. There's a whole storyline where David Cross is a never nude and he's like always wearing cut off jean shorts under okay. everything. Even when he showers, he's got cut off <laughs> jean shorts on Okay. because he's a never nude. Okay. So I just kept thinking. That's how she didn't get discovered in the shower. She's a never nude. <laughs> like That's Tobias Funke.
1: Probably there were others that either knew or suspected but didn't want to blow or cover. Right. Right. Maybe they had respect for her. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, she did say that she was treated pretty poorly once it came out. But Not surprising at all, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. I mean, women in the military still have shit they have to deal with. So that was my my first.
1: Okay. All right. So who is your second person you want to talk about? My
0: second person is Jane Bolin. For this one, I got information from the New York Times, Essence Magazine, the Los Angeles Times, Biography.com, and Wikipedia. So Jane Bolin was the first Black woman to graduate from Yale Law School and the first Black woman in the United States to become a judge. Awesome. Mm -hmm. She was the youngest of four children. Jane was born in 1908 in Poughkeepsie, New York, to Gaius Bolin, who was the son of an American Indian woman and an African-American man and Matilda Emery, a white English woman. Unfortunately, Matilda died when Jane was only eight years old. Mr. Bolin was the first black graduate of Williams College, owned his own legal practice, was the founding member of the local chapter of the NAACP, and later the first black president of the Dutchess County Bar Association.
1: Okay, so she had Leg- legacy, <laughs> a legacy, yeah. an expectation, and well, probably a desire to, to fulfill that legacy.
0: Yeah, so she grew up admiring and taking in all the legal texts that her father had in the home. She had a comfortable childhood, but was really shaken by reports of lynchings in the NAACP publication Crisis there like magazine Mm -hmm. and later in a letter around the time of her retirement she wrote quote it is easy to imagine how a young protected child who sees portrayals of brutality is forever scarred and becomes determined to contribute in her own small way to social justice jane was a brilliant student and graduated from high school at only 16 after being prevented from enrolling at vassar college because they didn't accept black students at the time she enrolled at wellesley college in 1924 where she was one of only two black freshmen And together, they opted to live off campus because of the social rejection that they were having to endure from other students.
1: Going to college in the first place is new and different. Scary. It's a big campus Mm -hmm. and you're on your own and you have all these expectations on you to kind of step up and be a grown up and having people clearly indicate that they don't want you there. Mm -hmm. They don't like you. They would prefer not to have you in the same class as them in terms Mm -hmm. of what kind of education you're getting. I just can't even imagine how hard it would be and how strong you'd have to be to just put your head up and keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Nevertheless. She persisted. Okay.
0: <laughs> so though she faced that social isolation and overt racism, Jane graduated in 1928 in the top 20 students in her class and was named a Wellesley scholar. When she talked with a guidance counselor at Wellesley about pursuing a career in law, she was told, quote, there is little opportunity for women in law and absolutely none for a, quote, again, colored one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even her own father discouraged her at first, saying that lawyers had to deal, quote, With the most unpleasant and sometimes grossest kind of human behavior, which, you know, self-exhibited at times. That's the thing. It's not wrong, but yeah, they're included in that. So eventually he acquiesced and got behind her decision with both moral and financial support. So, you know, she's coming from a more privileged place where she's able to access these things, but she still had to fight through a lot to earn them. Right. Yeah. So Jane was admitted to Yale Law School where she was the only Black student and one of only three women. When she graduated in 1931, she became the first Black woman to receive a law degree from the prestigious institution. The following year, she passed the New York State Bar Exam and began practicing with her father at his office in Poughkeepsie. Within a couple years, Jane married attorney Ralph Mizell and the couple relocated to New York City in 1933, where she accepted a position with the New York City Corporation Counsel's office. In 1936, she campaigned unsuccessfully as a Republican candidate for a state assembly seat, which, despite losing, boosted her reputation in New York politics. And then on July 22nd, 1939, Jane was called to appear before Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia at the World's Fair. She didn't know why she was being summoned and she was worried that she was going to be reprimanded for something, but she didn't know what. But instead, she was appointed and sworn in as a judge on domestic relations court,
1: which is now called family court. How do you not know you're going to be appointed as a judge? That's he surprised her. Odd. No, I know that. I'm yeah. just saying, like, that's such an odd concept to me like surprise we're making You're a a judge judge right now. What if she didn't want it? I mean she did clearly but so that earned
0: her the title of America's first Black woman judge. Awesome. Yeah. The following day, she told the New York World Telegram that she hoped to show, quote, a broad sympathy for human suffering. Jane Boleyn was subsequently reappointed to three more ten-year terms by Mayors William O'Dwyer, Robert F. Wagner Jr., and John V. Lindsay. And for the first half of her tenure, she remained the only Black woman judge in the United States. Wow, that's amazing. So that's from 1939 to 1958. She was the only Black woman That was a judge.
1: It's so interesting that, you know, when RBG passed away this last year and she was obviously like a Mm path-making, groundbreaking individual, there's all these tributes to her. Articles and merch and Mm -hmm. everything, you know. I have a fucking sticker right here on my laptop. But it's like, imagine what this woman went through. Yeah. And where are those accolades for her? I mean, obviously she was important enough and valued enough that there's education materials available to you right but arguably she was just as important and trailblazing as rbg mm-hmm. yet where is that content
0: yeah she didn't make it to as high a court as rbg so there's maybe that probably but
1: through you know things that she couldn't control right But still amazing accomplishments considering the time and the position she was in. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. During her time on the bench, she confronted many domestic issues and was especially passionate about encouraging racially integrated services for children. She worked to ensure that children of all ethnic backgrounds were accepted by publicly funded agencies. And additionally, she ended the practice in New York of skin color based assignments for probation officers. So I guess in the past they were, you're black, you're assigned to a black man, you're white, you're assigned to a white man, whatever, right? Hmm, Okay. By all accounts, Jane was a thoughtful and compassionate judge, and apparently she chose not to wear standard judicial robes because she thought it would make children feel more comfortable in her court, which uh, is okay. really sweet. In 1978, after four decades, she stepped down from the bench, not because she wanted to, but because she reached the mandatory retirement age of 70, and she stated, quote, they're kicking me out. <laughs> I know. Look, I'm sad I couldn't meet this woman. Yeah. Yeah. In her retirement, Jane continued to advocate for children's rights and education by volunteering as a tutor in New York City's public schools and serving on the New York State Board of Regents. She also acted as a legal advisor to the National Council of Negro Women and served on the boards of the NAACP, the National Urban League, and the Child Welfare League. Talk about making a difference. Seriously. Like feet on the ground, making a fucking huge difference. Yeah. She died on January 8th, 2007 at the age of 98 in Long Island.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. That's Jane Bolin. My work here is done. What else have you got for me?
1: (laughs) This woman that I'm going to talk about next was really fascinating to me well, all of it was, but especially the time frame Hmm. from, you know, the time she was born to the time she passed away. It was so early that I'm just amazed at what she accomplished and what she was able to do in that time. So her name is Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler. She was born Rebecca Davis in 1837 in Delaware, and she was raised in Pennsylvania by her aunt. And I don't know why, I don't know why her parents didn't raise her, but her aunt cared for ill townspeople. So it's my understanding her aunt was not a doctor but she acted as a doctor in her community Hmm. and that had a huge influence on Rebecca she was inspired by the fact that people would go to her aunt when they got sick so in 1852 when she was about 21 she moved to Massachusetts where she worked as a nurse before applying and becoming accepted into the New England Female Medical College. She won a scholarship that was established by a local businessman, and she was the only African-American woman who attended the school at the time. Mm -hmm. In 1864, she became the first African-American woman to become a doctor of medicine in the United States. What, 1864? 1864. Wow. I know. She also was one of the first female physicians Authors in the 19th century. In 1883, she published a book called A Book of Medical Discourses. So it's like a two part book that she dedicated to nurses and mothers. It focuses on maternal and pediatric medical care and was among the first publications written by an African-American about medicine. Wow. At the time, very few African-Americans were allowed to attend medical school or publish books. But in 1860, there were heavy demands for medical care from Civil War veterans. So that kind of opened up more opportunities for women physicians. Mm -hmm. And based on her talent, she was given a recommendation to attend the school by her supervising physician when she was a medical apprentice. So that year, there were 54,543 physicians in the United States. 300 of those were women. Rebecca Lee Crumpler was the first and only African American physician in her class. 54,000 people and change. Yeah. Wow. She practiced medicine in Boston and then later in Richmond, Virginia, and then I think she went back to Boston later. She treated women and children, and she also provided medical care for freed slaves. And what I read about her is that, especially later on in her career, she was really not concerned so much about payment, like if people couldn't pay, Mm -hmm. especially like parents bringing their children, she would just, you know, she loved to practice medicine. Right. so. So this is fucked up. She was subject to racism and sexism during her career, no surprise. Naturally. During during this time many men believed that a man's brain was 10% bigger than a woman's brain on average and that it was a woman's job to act submissively and be beautiful. Many male physicians did not respect Dr. Crumpler and wouldn't listen to or respect her opinions.
0: I mean, I would love to say I'm surprised by that, but the fact is there
1: are still men out there today that believe all that same uh, well, shit. It's so dumb. That's It's like it's laughable so to me. That's why I'm laughing. Yes. But also, fuck off. God. Okay, so she died on March 9th, 1895 in Massachusetts. So like, it wasn't even 1900 when she had wow. this amazing career. So she and her husband were buried in unmarked graves for 125 years until july 16th 2020 oh donations were collected through a fundraiser to create gravestones for the couple and a ceremony was held at fairview cemetery where a gravestone was finally installed marking where she and her husband are buried wow that just happened last year the rebecca lee pre-health society at syracuse university is a club encouraging people of diverse backgrounds to pursue health professions the rebecca lee society is one of the first medical societies for african-american women in 2019 virginia governor ralph northam declared march 30th national doctor's day the rebecca lee crumpler day wow so i mean she's obviously been revered and respected but everything that she accomplished i mean she was born in 1831 and died in 1895 that's fucking insane It's just amazing, you know, to be that one person Mm -hmm. out of almost 55,000 people in one year who became physicians that was African-American and female Mm -hmm. and to accomplish everything she did. um, I feel like I've done nothing with my life. I know, right? Wow. (laughs) Those are some huge odds stacked against you. Yeah. And all because her aunt cared for people who got sick. You know, and they came to her and that inspired her. So, yeah, it's wow. amazing. I thought that was interesting that it was just last year that yeah. they took up the donations and 125 years 125. after she died. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So, these well, are definitely people. I mean, many, many people, but definitely these four people. Like, yeah. I will have my kids listen to this episode. They can't obviously listen to all of our episodes. This is the first episode that I'm going to allow my daughter to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. For so, sure. like you said, American history is mm-hmm. part of American history. And yep. I would love for them to know it, especially all these outstanding female role models. I mean, yeah, that are passionate and that fucking persevere and fight through obstacles. Yeah. I mean, we are not in a position where we decide I want to have this career or I'm going to have to fight really hard to be accepted because of my race or my gender. I mean, of course, there's always still some of that percolating. But compared to what these women went through and Mm -hmm. the barriers they broke through to accomplish what they did. It's just unbelievable. It's just incredible. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this with me. I'm glad that we talked about this.
1: Yeah. It's a great idea. So I hope people like this episode. I know, like you said, it's something different different Mm -hmm. it's not our typical jokey fucking around (laughs) (laughs) being ridiculous selves but certainly worthy of the time and i enjoyed it so
0: yeah and i would like to encourage everyone to read up as much as you can about the shit that we didn't learn Right. Because it wasn't available information to us. Right. Just because we didn't learn about it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And that doesn't absolve us of the responsibility of knowing it now. Because now we're adults. We can make the choices for ourselves to dig in a little deeper and not just buy the narrative that we were fed. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, then. Should
1: we cheers it out? <laughs> but we need things in our glasses. We do. First. So I will pour things in our glasses while you tell mm-hmm. everybody all the stuff they're supposed to do for that us. That is a
0: great idea. You all know where to find us online. All the socials at You can send us an email at cheersatproseccotheory.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing. We appreciate each and every one of you. And I said each and every
1: very purposely Ugh. because Megan hates it so very much. I hate the phrase, each and every one of you. <laughs> I've been scarred from The Bachelor, from no. Desiree, who I actually really like Desiree in her season. But she said each and every one of you so many times on that season. Mm. I could not take it anymore. I'm scarred. Well,
0: that is a choice you made to continue watching. So <laughs> That's on true. That,
1: I'm going to be accountable for (laughs) Let's go have some dinner and then we will watch that bachelor. Okay, cheers! (laughs)